Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv Guglani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Jerry Ballantyne. Dr. Ballantyne is Dean of the College of Osteopathic Medicine and Vice President for Health Sciences and Medical Affairs at the New York Institute of Technology. He is an emergency medicine physician and has held numerous other leadership positions throughout his career, including as a hospital medical director, emergency department director, and residency director. Before the interview started, we were talking about his role also as an editor at WebMD. And as you recall, we recently had Dr. Eric Topol, who's the editor-in-chief of Medscape on, on the podcast. And he also runs an esports journal and is currently writing a book on esports. I'm looking forward to asking Dr. Ballantyne about osteopathic medicine, how NYIT has adjusted to the disruptions of COVID, and addressing burnout in healthcare professions, among other topics. So Dr. Ballantyne, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Uh, thank you for inviting me. My first question is just how are you doing? It's been a stressful year with so many different things going on. How are you and uh, your family holding up? Well, we, we're doing well. We were very fortunate that I have access to a large outdoor space, a 50-acre farm where I can actually uh, walk around and clear my mind. Um, I think my faculty and staff at the medical school is certainly struggling. Uh, I think the students all across the country in medical school are struggling. I mean, for those of you who are physicians, imagine being a medical student with all the stresses that come with it. And then Going on top of it, everything changes every single week. So, uh, but no, I'm. Thank you for asking. I'm doing well. well. I'm glad to hear that. And we'll let's actually just dive right in. I mean, this has been a an unusual year by all accounts. You know, you're in New York. Can you t- walk us through how COVID impacted NYIT's operations, how the faculty and students adjusted to it, and then where you guys are at now, especially as we're potentially on the cusp of a second wave. Yeah, so we have uh, two campuses. We have the campus in New York, and then we have a campus in Arkansas. So for me, it was really interesting watching both of them parallel. So in New York, COVID happened, and then it happened just really fast. So we were all sitting there intellectualizing about, well, you know, this is now in China. We get some cases on the West Coast. What's going to happen next? And suddenly my phone started ringing. My friends who run hospitals, the ICUs were full. Can you help us with uh, beds? Do you know someone who has ventilators? We need PPE equipment. And just as that was hitting, we at the same time got calls from students saying, you know, I'm at a hospital where they want me to see a patient, but they don't have N95 masks for me. Or, you know, we we are not allowed to come to the hospital tomorrow suddenly. So I think it was the sudden uh, hit that came to New York City. And uh, I have to give a lot of credit to the faculty, the staff, and my senior team, we had about seven days to move a medical school fully online because the governor of New York closed all universities. And we had just about the same amount of time to figure out what to do with third and fourth year students as hospitals were one by one closing and not not closing as hospitals, but closing as educational institutions. I think at the first wave, you didn't really quite believe it. You were just kind of sitting there going, this seems just really unimaginable. And then one night I received a call of a friend of mine who's the chief medical officer of a large health system. I mean, large, he's seen it all, he's done it all. And I don't wanna say he was in tears, but he was exhausted, shocked and scared. And he said to me, Jerry, we just put a team together to determine who will get the next ventilator. 
And I think if you're sitting in the United States in 2020, and a physician who runs a system that probably has a thousand beds and you know a couple of hundred ICU beds says to you, we have a team that will pick who will survive and who won't because we're out of ventilators, then it really hits home. And uh, luckily, it peaked in New York just around the time when there was just no more resources available. Uh, we, for example, were working with a, a bunch of physicians across the country, uh, engineers, to look at ventilator splitters, uh, devices that one ventilator could treat two patients. I mean, that's unimaginable to, to even think about that. Yeah, I mean, that's tremendous. I mean, so we know about the New York experience and how that had the highest infection rate in the States. And then obviously, I think was well, relatively well managed. Now it's one of the lowest infection rates in the, in the US. How about Arkansas? I mean, you, you mentioned you have a, a, a campus down there. Yeah, Arkansas was really fascinating. This, it was like, what are you talking about? Don't worry, Jerry. It, everything is fine. I said, no, no, it's not. We have people dying here. We have morgues, you know, pulling up to hospitals. And then slowly it started coming to Arkansas. And right now, actually, Arkansas is our main issue, right? New York, the rates are really low, uh, although we're still in a hybrid teaching model. In Arkansas, I think uh, this week for the first time, a thousand new cases a day were reported. So Arkansas is now going through something not quite as bad yet, but their ICUs are full, their hospitals are full, they're looking for more physicians. The other thing, because we teach both schools together, when we went to the hybrid model in New York, we also switched to a hybrid model in Arkansas because we felt we should be parallel. Both sets of students should get identical experiences. And that's where we are right now. So our students, what we decided to do is, uh, one, we test all of them at the beginning of the semester, and then they go into pods of 20. And those 20 students come on campus one day a week. And the first year students would have anatomy and a couple other uh, in-person experiences. And the rest of the week, they learn everything else remotely. Now, we were quite fortunate because for about the last 10 years, all our main lectures were given live, but at the same time videotaped. And then at night, we would release them to all the students. So we were set up for that. But all the other hybrid teaching and how to deal with anatomy lab and all that uh, was quite a challenge for our faculty. And even now our faculty is repeating the same classes because the next part of students are coming in. Uh, so it is an interesting experience. Uh, so far, the good news is we are comparing very closely their grades to the previous years and the pass rates and the average questions answered correctly are very similar to the last few years. Uh, it really won't show until they take their national exams, until they take USMLE and Comlex to see if that group of students will score the same amount. But so far, all indications are that they will. That's great. That's good that the adjustment happened and yet, you know, the quality hasn't, hasn't suffered. What are some of the lasting changes you think um, COVID has brought upon both how NYT does its education, both within the didactics as well as the, the clinicals? You know, a lot of schools have had to adjust that. As you mentioned, the hospital systems have kind of closed off in many ways as educational institutions. What are some of the lasting changes you think COVID has brought upon medical education at NYT and beyond? I like when I speak to our faculty and staff and students, I, I use an expression that might sound a little bit cruel. I say, we got to take advantage of this pandemic, right? We cannot let a, a pandemic go to waste, so to speak. So we were forced to do something that all my faculty would have said is impossible, right? Okay, 
we have seven days to run our health system. We run an ambulatory health system to go to telehealth, right? If you would have said that to someone in regular time, so to speak, they would have said that's, uh, that's impossible, uh, but we did it. So why would we go back to the way it was done previously when we find that our psychiatric patients love being able to speak uh, to the psychiatrist this way and it's easy and they can get more appointments. Uh, and the same with other venues. Most medical schools need more space, right? Most medical schools, you say, what's when it comes out, we need more study space, we need more lab space. Well, we suddenly have learned that probably 20% of my workforce could work from home. And I can now use their offices as study space, as more faculty space or whatever else they might need. So I think those are two things that we've learned that would work, just like we're doing right now. We've learned that Zoom actually does work. Uh, the biggest lesson for me was I was not a fan of telemeetings or Zoom meetings. Uh, and we have NYT as university has campuses in China and Vancouver and Abu Dhabi. So I was very much used to Zooming and I just didn't like it. And I realized what I didn't like about it was when half your team is in person with you in the office, and the other half are on Zoom. That builds this weird environment. But when your full team is on Zoom, in many ways it's easier because you can see everyone, everybody has to concentrate, everybody gets a chance to speak. So it's, I think, a much better, uh, something that we certainly taking away as probably keeping in, in some way or form. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. I mean, we started Osmosis as a, as a distributed company where uh, even when there were four of us, there, we were in three different locations. Uh, now we're, you know, over 80 people attend our weekly team meetings and they're probably in 60 different cities. And so there's no real one office where you're remote from. It's all distributed. So that, that's a big difference in how we, how we call it. It's distributed where everyone's at home or everyone is apart from each other, uh, which puts a level playing field as opposed to having an in-group or an out-group. You mentioned telemedicine. You know, I'm curious, have you all integrated anything in your curriculum to prepare your students for the future of providing healthcare in a post-COVID, hopefully post-COVID world, uh, including maybe telemedicine rotations or, or anything else that you think that you all are considering or have accelerated integrating into your curriculum as a result of, of COVID? So although the New York campus and the Arkansas campus have the same curriculum at the core, each campus has specialty areas. And when we, the, the Arkansas campus is only about six years old, first graduating class was, was actually this year. Uh, when we uh, looked at the Arkansas campus, because the emphasis on rural medicine, we actually integrated telehealth and telemedicine into their curriculum, and they take a simultaneous telemedicine, telehealth class that uh, our students in New York don't take. They do something else up here. So that definitely has already been going on, and we just actually received a grant to provide more telehealth education and programs to rural areas. Uh, so I, I think that has been going on and will probably spread even more and faster than what we thought it would do before. Makes sense. And, you know, zooming out a bit, I know uh, I'm obviously very familiar with NYIT, but for our audience, which sometimes consists of pre-health students as well, can you just tell us a bit more about um, NYIT, what brought you there, and just the size and scale of the institution? Uh, plus the fact that one thing that's really interesting is the NYIT Arkansas. Uh, do you have examples of uh, other campuses you're looking to build and other growth areas for the institution? So NYIT as a university has about uh, 9,000 students, campuses, mostly in uh, Old Westbury, which is on Long Island, New York, and Manhattan, New York. 
and then the campuses in China, Abu Dhabi, and Vancouver. Long Island is the original medical school, the NYT College of Osteopathic Medicine, which was founded 40 years ago. That school currently has about 300 students a year. One of the programs is actually a program for physicians from other countries who did not uh, get residencies in the United States, but still want to become physicians. We accept them into our DO program and they basically go to medical school again. They don't have to take MCATs. They don't have to have a 3.8 GPA and all the other things that our students otherwise would have. In Long Island, you offer the the DO degree for our medical students, and we offer a DO PhD program, DO MBA program, a couple of master's programs. I actually end up NYT because of Arkansas. So my background is really in healthcare. I'm an emergency physician by training, ran a residency, was asked to run a hospital and a health system. And my last job was executive vice president and uh, chief medical officer for St. Barnabas Health System in the Bronx. And a friend of mine called me and said, can you do me a favor and fly down to Arkansas and take a look and see if the hospitals there could educate medical students. And I've lived in New York for 20 years. So I'm like, Arkansas, I'm not, I'm not quite sure if, you know, how to even get there. And so I flew into Memphis, drove down to Arkansas and spent two days driving to Arkansas. And it was just a fascinating experience because I would meet with a pediatrician who put a thousand miles on her car a week, driving between four little towns. And I speak to a family who would tell me, well, you know, our OBGYN in this town retired. So now we're driving an hour and a half to get a GYN exam. So the need was so apparent. I mean, yes, when I looked at national statistics, it's apparent. But when you, you know, you, when you actually talk to somebody who has to drive an hour and a half to see a GYN, uh, that's different than just looking at a number and saying, you know, they rank 49th in uh, primary care or whatever else it might be. So I, I was very fascinated with the project. And then my friend who called me, called me, said, well, you know, the reason I sent you down there is I'm thinking about retiring and I want you to take over this project and come to NYIT, uh, which I did. So in Arkansas, we have a class size of 115 and we recruit more or less exclusively in the Delta area. And when I say recruit, I mean, obviously we give preference to the Delta area altogether. Between the two campuses, we get about 7,000 applicants. So it's less recruiting as in finding the, the right kind of student within that mix. Uh, and we do not accept, for example, students from New York, Connecticut, or New Jersey, because we don't want this to at any point appear like a farm team for the New York campus or for students who just want to go to medical school. And here I got in, and then I'm going back to practice in New York. So our first match had 76% of the students going to primary care, and nearly just a little bit under half of them actually in residencies in the Delta region, which is amazing. And our first incoming class had more students from Arkansas than left Arkansas the previous year to go to, me to medical school outside of Arkansas. So all big successes for the Delta region and very exciting successes for the Delta region. That's tremendous. What attracted you to osteopathic medicine and what do you think um, the future is for the, for the professions? Obviously one of the fastest growing health professions out there with so many new campuses being built and, and enrollments going up. Yeah, so currently 25% uh, of all medical students entering medical school enter a DO program. And I, I think that's quite stunning. I'm sure when I went to school, which is a long, long time ago, was much less. I think osteopathic medical school out of necessity always had a couple of interesting things. So on one hand, you receive medical education just like you would uh, at an MD school, but then you also learn that skill set of learning your hands and 
examining a patient's musculoskeletal system and making adjustments to that system uh, through osteopathic manipulative medicine. I think that's very attractive. Uh, I think the notion of holistic medicine that still is often talked about has really merged in the two professions, right? I mean, I think it's insulting to say that an MD doesn't look at a patient as a whole patient holistically. I think that's, I would call that more propaganda than the truth. The truth is most medical schools nowadays teach in a holistic fashion. I think osteopathic medical schools also look at the applicants partially out of necessity, a little bit different, right? So somebody who's been three years out, I, I was, I meet with all the students in small groups and I just met with 10 students from the Arkansas campus. Uh, via Zoom, which makes it much nicer than flying down there. And one of them had always wanted to be a physician. Her mom uh, ran an OR and she went to college and screwed up in college. You know, I mean, screwed up meaning she got a 3.0. So for most of her, that's not screwing up. But for her, that was screwing up. Then uh, got a master's, became uh, worked somewhere and received another degree. And suddenly her GPA was at a point. She did well on her MCATs but still not a candidate for many schools. Well, she's at our Arkansas campus. She wants to be a cardiothoracic surgeon because of her mom's experience. And, you know, what better story than if in 10 years, and I'm, I'm not sure she quite understands how long the vote is to be a cardiovascular surgeon, but let's say in 10, 12 years, she is a cardiovascular surgeon who works in a smaller hospital in the Delta region. I mean, that would be a great story. So I think out of necessity, partially, but also just out of philosophy, taking someone who took a slightly different path, who's not that boilerplate, you know, four years into medical school, this is my GPA, this is my MCAT, I make it in. Uh, I think all medical schools wish there was a way of testing who's going to be a great physician. There's just no such test. Right, so we use markers to make sure that they're successful academically, MCAT and GPA. When people ask me, I said, I have to use those because I need to make sure that you pass your, your COMLEX or USMLE because otherwise, imagine if I take your money for four years of tuition and then you're not practicing medicine. I mean, that would be horrible. So I need those standards, but the standards probably could be lowered a little bit if we know you were successful and take some people who have that extra passion, that extra grit, that extra something. Uh, and that's one of the areas I'm very interested in. You know, if you look at Angela Duckworth's work with passion and grit, just to kind of find something that we could really identify in students. And all the recent data, if you look at the, uh, I think about a year ago, the data from the academic medicine that looked at the new MCATs, students who score 495 on the MCAT, have a nearly similar success rate first years of medical school as students who score much higher. Not quite the same, but that's great news because that means we could look at students and for example, NYT come, we don't look at students in that range, but you know, that might be a range to look at and see is there another talent in that group that will make them great physicians. That, those are really great points. And actually the yeah, grit is a favorite book on our team as well. And trying to predict who makes a good employee, same thing, who makes a good, good physician uh, or caregiver. I understand that one area of particular interest for you is working with medical students and, and residents on ways to increase empathy and decrease burnout. So do you mind commenting a bit about that and, how, and your approach? Yeah, I mean, think back on medical education, right? So when I was in medical education, I, I, was, I went to medical school and for four years I was told you better study hard and you know, keep your head down. Uh, you know, if you have 20 minutes, sometimes you better study a little bit more. Nobody said, hey, you know, maybe you should go outside and play some basketball or 
relax or do something else. Now, I came from a background where I loved exercising, so I made that part of my lifestyle, but that was not something encouraged or supported. Then you match into your residency, right? And you have another three to seven years. What are you told? You know, you're on, back when I was there, you were on call every third night. You know, don't make eye contact with your program director because they're going to fire you. Uh, don't speak back to your attendant, you know, show up, you know, I mean, so after all this time, when you've never seen empathy, right, nobody's shown you empathy, nobody's come to you and said, hey, Jerry, you okay? Hey, Jerry, why don't you take a break? After all that time, your first day as an attending, you're told and make sure you show empathy to your patient. Now, I haven't seen it for seven years, I haven't seen it for 12 years, I haven't seen it for whatever time. So uh, my approach is we need to show empathy day one of medical school. So we need to show empathy, students to each other. Hey, my study partner, I don't know, he doesn't look himself, he's not acting himself. Faculty to students, it's okay to make a mistake. It's okay to fail a test. We all have failed tests. And staff to students, hey, don't worry, sit down. I know financial aid, I'll figure it out for you. So the first thing is that we need to practice empathy with each other. Because only then can we be in an environment we can give it to our patients. And then we need to find other ways of encouraging empathy. So uh, my research is on uh, meditation and empathy. You know, does empathy, can you affect it? But what I really found there was that a lot of the original research on empathy might not be quite accurate or maybe might be misquoted. You know, is emp does empathy really go down during your third year of medical school or the scale we're using to measure empathy? Maybe that predicts it going down. Uh, so there's a lot of those things going on. And I don't think we found a really good way of teaching empathy. So we need to partially uh, accept students who already have that skill set, that innate ability. And I think there might also some of the racial and diversity issues coming in. You know, it's probably much easier to show empathy to somebody who looks like you, who talks like you, who sounds like you, who dresses like you. So how can we help our students saying, hey, just because this person looks different, speaks different, how can you find empathy? And how can we train more physicians for who then represent those groups as well so that that empathy is, is right there? I think all of us know that physicians who make mistakes in general don't do them intentionally. Uh, that physicians, if they have empathy and compassion, can take a step back and say, you know what, I'm going to have to look that up. I'm not quite sure what you have. You know, let me ask somebody else to help me. And I think that's all part of empathy and compassion, which makes you a much better physician. That's wonderful. I love how you articulated how you all do it day one. And also the fact uh, that you've done personal research on meditation and its impact on empathy. I know you have a hard stop coming up. So my last question for you is just, you know, you probably do this every month uh, in your small groups with your students, but what advice would you give to someone considering a career in the health professions right now, especially given all that's gone on this year with COVID? You know, what advice would you even want to give to yourself if you were considering a career in healthcare? Well, just so you know, applicant pools are up tremendously. Uh, so we've seen a 20% increase in applicant pool, which makes me very happy because it makes me realize that what I was always hoping for, people apply to healthcare settings because they want to help people. And that's obviously great. I think the first thing I would tell them is just take a deep breath and figure out why you want to do it, right? Are you doing it because mom and dad told you to do it? Which we often see in the BSDO program, which is a seven-year program. You know, when you're 17, can you really know that's what you want to do? To explore everything else, you know, maybe being an engineer is better. Uh, maybe you're better fit to be a high school teacher. I don't know, whatever it is. 
And three, don't make it all about healthcare. I think the best medical students, the best physicians, the best healers have other hobbies. You know, I see it with the medical students. You know, if somebody had been, one of our students was a professional ballerina. That's somebody who I say, continue dancing a little bit. Um, you know, I, one of the students I spoke to was a professional piano player. Continue playing piano. Have something else in your life. Your job, which, you know, will be your passion and will be nearly all encompassing, needs a balance. You know, obviously your family, but it's also nice to have something else that you, that you have of your, for yourself and that you can bring to your patients. What's nicer than to play the piano at your office, let's say, as your patients uh, leave for the evening or whatever, make a, uh, make a drawing. So love healthcare, make sure it's right for you, but keep some passion for yourself. That's some wonderful advice and couldn't agree more having gone to med school and kept in touch with a lot of my classmates who are, are, are in practice right now. So Dr. Ballantyne, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you. I really appreciate it. With that, I'm Shivulani. Thank you to everyone for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.